school systems go. <clears throat> so given the theme of this retreat and how we've been unfolding the talks, there's probably no surprise what I'm going to talk on tonight, which is the fourth noble truth. But it's kind of a daunting challenge because the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path. And if you know anything about the Buddha's teachings, and you've seen as we've unfolded the first three, each one tends to have many lists within it. And so it's lists within lists within lists. Um, and there's sometimes some self-referencing within that. And it really encompasses the whole of the path. So in the next uh, 58 minutes or so, here we go. But what's amazing about these teachings is what a vast, deep, yet consistent map of practice the Buddha has given us. And you know, I have to say this, he didn't have a computer, he didn't have Wikipedia or a database, or he wasn't even writing this down. And yet, over the 45 years of his teaching, really what he says is, what he taught over and over again is Sila Samadhi Panya, the, 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 the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And I love that right in the title of um, this path factor is that it's a path, that it's already pointing that this is a spiritual, practice is a spiritual journey that we undertake, and this is the map for us. This is the path of practice. And the Buddha often talked about his teaching as a gradual training, as a purification, as a cultivation um, that we undergo as we take up this path of practice. And so he was quite clear about it. Often for ourselves, we may not be so clear, you know. Is this the path? Are we on the path? What path are we on? Where is it going? What, what am I meant to be doing? You know, that's what the thing of, if, if, no, I won't even try, I can't remember it. Um, we don't know often. I certainly know when I left Australia... I was 25 years old. I was so clueless. I mean, I thought I was going to India or Asia for six months. I'd basically never been back to live. I'd been back to visit. But meeting the Dharma in India just really changed my life. And I made that the focus from then on. And <coughs> ended up meeting Guy in England, getting married, coming to California, and, and now becoming a Dharma teacher. Could Could never have known that. And even on something... I was going to say simple, relatively simple, like a week retreat, it's also a journey. And we also don't know exactly where we'll end up. I mean, if we try to, if we have expectations or agenda, they're usually a, a great source of suffering and not helpful. And what we see is that every person here has their own unique individual experience. There's no one way to do a retreat, to have a retreat experience. But the direction is similar. For all of us. What's that direction? Less suffering, more understanding, less confusion, more happiness. So that's the direction that we're all on. I'm often reminded, you know, you get on a plane and the, the, the stewardess will often say, so this is a destination check. If you're not going to Albuquerque, you know, you better get off the plane. It's like, okay, good. I know I'm on the, the right plane. Um, on this path, it's not, not so clear. Right? No, there's no one saying, this is exactly where you should go or you are going. It's so much more individual. But unless we have some idea 
as Guy already used this quote, Yogi Berra, unless you know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else. I saw this um, little short story from a book on the Darwin Awards. Do you know the Darwin Awards? It's, uh, it, it, they, they, they find stories of people who are improving the gene pool by taking themselves out of it. Um, and some of them are pretty gruesome. They're often a little funny. This one isn't gruesome. It, so it only gets an honorable mention because it doesn't actually improve the gene pool. But it's a bit, it's about not knowing where you're going. After stopping for drinks at an illegal bar, a Zimbabwean bus driver found that the 20 mental patients he was supposed to be transporting from Harawe to Bulawayo had escaped. Not wanting to admit his incompetence, the driver went to a nearby bus stop and offered everyone waiting there a free ride. <laughs> he then delivered the passengers to the mental hospital, telling the staff that the patients were very excitable and prone to bizarre fantasies. <laughs> the deception wasn't discovered for three days. So this is not what's happening. You did have an idea. You were meant to be here, and there's no deception. But we are on a journey, and it's an amazing journey. And we really can't know where it's going to go. And so this, this symbolism of journey and path is, is deep and woven through the Buddha's teachings, as I said. Um, yet the, eight, uh, the eightfold path is often also depicted as a wheel, right? Which also has symbolism, meaning there's no real beginning and end. We can enter anywhere, and what's happening is we're constantly deepening um, in our understanding of all the different factors. It's not like you leave one behind. You know, you've been through that station, now you're going to the next station. Always deepening, always integrating. So it's often depicted as a wheel. I think I talked about that, the eight-spoked wheel, sometimes the 12 spoked wheel. And as I said, it describes the complete path of practice from beginning to end, how we live our lives, how we meditate, um, and the wisdom that's needed on the path. And I began, if you remember, oh, those many days ago, seven, to, it seems like a long time since we all gathered here for the first evening, about pilgrimage, because traveling here really does seem like a pilgrimage. It's a little bit of an arduous journey, doesn't matter where you come from, just finding your way here from wherever you came. Um, and they often say about pilgrimage is the journey and what you experience on the journey is just as important as the destination. But what pilgrimages are about are holy places. Again, the traditional pilgrimage in Buddhism is to the, the places of the Buddha's uh, birth, life, and death. But what holy places are are places that remind you of your aspiration and invite you to wake up. And this is that, Right? This is a holy place in all of those ways. So really appreciate the pilgrimage we've all made to get here. But I think I also mentioned just briefly that Guy and I did a pilgrimage together and then I took a group of students on a pilgrimage. So I've done it a couple of times and loved the way that it brought the suttas alive, the different places where the Buddha taught and where the discourses were given and he stayed in the caves but also just being in India, if you've traveled in India at all, India is a great teacher of patience and equanimity. <laughs> Unless you cultivate those qualities, it can really be very difficult. So all of us experience that on these pilgrimages. One of the places that everyone visits is Sarnath. And again, this is 
where this discourse was given, the deer park at Isipatana, the old name for what is now Sarnath, where the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta was um, given. And there's a beautiful park there, and they do have some deer, and you know it's, it's quite lovely. Mainly in ruins, there's some big stupas, but there's a museum there, the Sarnath Museum, where they've collected objects and relics and statues from the different periods of Buddhism that they, you know, Buddhism was lost in India for, for hundreds of years, thousands of years maybe. Um, and so a lot, of the, a lot of the statues, the iconography was lost, and so there's been excavations, and they put a lot of it in this museum. And it's a, not a big museum uh, by any means, but as you walk down one hallway, one, um, what do they call them, arcade? I call them in museums. Gallery. gallery, thank you. At the far end of this gallery, there's an enormous Buddha statue that's the most beautiful Buddha statue I have ever seen. And I was re- reminded or wanted to tell the story because that's the image that we have behind us that Lloyd Burton kindly brought us because he said, there's no Buddhas in Vyasitos. Let's have a few. This is the Sarnath Buddha. Um, it's a, a batik rendering of it, so it doesn't quite convey the majesty of the original, which is larger than life size in this beautiful sandstone rock, so it kind of glows, but it just emanates wisdom and compassion. And you can tell that whoever carved it had some access to those qualities to be able to so convey it in the rock that they carved it from. So it's exquisite. But I was also really taken by the mudra that the, this Buddha image was in. You know, there's many common mudras, the earth-touching mudra, the fearless mudra, the meditation mudra. Um, they're fairly simple. I don't know if you can see this. It's somewhat complicated. <laughs> the left hand is like this and points into the heart. And the right hand has the teaching mudra, left hand rests like this. And so I was really fascinated by that. What does that mean? And luckily we were traveling, I had actually had met a student who was in DPP but wasn't on our pilgrimage, but he was Indian traveling with his sister who was somewhat of a religious scholar, so she could explain that it meant inner cultivation and outer expression. And so I just Mm. loved that mudra, uh, pointing to the heart and yet this dynamic, extension outward and as I reflected on it what really came to me is this is a symbol for the first two path factors of the eightfold path which are right view which is understanding wisdom and right intention which is a lot about our actions so this mudra to me really represents that um, expression of inner cultivation and outer expression so the first two are right view right understanding and right intention, which is um, the actions that come out of that of intentionation, intention of renunciation, non-ill will, and non-cruelty. And if you, you probably heard this shorthand, we often talk about the Buddha's teachings being the expression of wisdom and compassion. Same thing, right view, right intention. And they're said to be the two wings of uh, the bird of Buddhism. And Thich Nhat Hanh said mindfulness says mindfulness is the body of the bird. But wisdom and compassion. So these are the first two path factors that I think the Buddha is pointing us to through this beautiful mudra. And each of the path factors in the Pali um, has a term, and it's always prefaced by this word samma. 
and I'll usually just simply translate it as wise or right, but it's not right as in right and wrong. Wise sometimes doesn't quite meet it, but it really means whole or complete or perfected. But the essence of it is onward leading, beneficial, for our benefit, these path factors. And so these first two, what it's saying is when we see clearly the natural expression is compassion. That's the nature of the, the wise mind, is, is com- kindness, compassion, and letting go. And the, the, the path factors are, all, are divided into three sections, sila, samadhi, panya, the, uh, panya, sila, samadhi, in the order I'm going to do, because it te- traditionally begins with the wisdom section, right view and right intention. And it's interesting that you have to have enough right view to get you on the path, but that's what deepens ultimately to find the release. So it's both the beginning and the end of the path. It's kind of interesting. So right view samaditi is the first factor, and it's right view or right understanding. It's all about wisdom. What do you think the main definition of right understanding is? Anything? Gene, I'm going to look at you. You did DPP. I know, but I'm so not in my thinking. <laughs> I know, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> anyway, it's not a trick question. Main definition of wise view. There's four of them. We're teaching them here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You must be terribly disappointed. <laughs> oh, we're used to it. <laughs> but that is, the Buddha would often say, this is right understanding. If you understand the Four Noble Truths, this is the definition of understanding and the path of practice. But in other places, he'll t- they'll talk about dependent origination or understanding karma, understanding the three characteristics. But the Four Noble Truths, if you truly dive into them, includes everything. It includes, you can find a way to include all of those others in there. And when we understand the Four Noble Truths, as we've been teaching here, what happens is we come become aligned with the Dhamma. What does the Dhamma mean? Both the teachings of the Buddha, so we're, the teachings are aligning us with the teachings, but it also means the way things are. The Dhamma means the way things are, and when we're in alignment with the Dhamma, there's less suffering. And so what happens is a Dhamma in view starts to suffuse our lives. This is how it becomes integrated, and this is what happens on retreat. Why retreats are so valuable is we spend these days or weeks or months or however long it is being infused with Dhamma view, Dhamma understanding, even if you're not consciously thinking about it. This is what's happening as you hear the teachings and practice. And so our perspectives start to shift from sort of more materialistic, consumeristic, whatever our habits are, to this Dharma view, Dharma understanding. And so our values often change as we understand in this way. And we start to see or know for ourselves what are the causes of suffering? How do we develop more happiness, compassion for ourselves? And as someone said on another retreat, what I see, what you guys are doing is just saying the same thing over and over again in different ways. Yes, pay attention, don't cling. You know, that's in, in 
two sentences, two short sentences. That's the essence of these teachings. And as we deepen in this understanding, as I said, the natural expression of that is the second factor, which is wise intention or thought, samasankapa. And these are the Dharma values that we align with. As we develop wise view and in alignment, how does this get expressed? This is what the Buddha encouraged. Renunciation, non-ill will, and non-cruelty. And it's interesting that they're all framed as restraint. And sometimes this can feel not disheartening, but like, oh, we want love, we want compassion, we want oneness. But the Buddha says, no, renunciation, non-ill will non-cruelty. But why this is powerful or um, useful is it's always possible to restrain. We can't always have an experience of the positive expressions of those. So for enunciation, it might be generosity. For non-ill will, metta. For for non-cruelty, compassion. That's the direction those intentions go. But it starts from just being right where we are and knowing, you know, it may be met as not accessible, but we can not harbor ill will towards someone. And if we can develop that as a foundation, the positive expressions can naturally develop. And maybe they're there immediately. In the Pali, these sort of negative terminologies hold within them the expression of the positive that doesn't come across so well in English. But there is a wisdom in this simple framing as, as restraint. So the first of these values is renunciation. And again, not something that is highly spoken of in our culture. We've talked about you know what a culture of greed we live in. But when the Buddha talks about renunciation, when we talk about renunciation... It's not as a penance. We sometimes have an idea of renunciations when we, you know, wear the sackcloth and ashes or the hair shirt or, and, and, you know, if we're a good Buddhist, we wouldn't own anything. We'd give everything up. We'd live in a certain way. It's not really about that. It's really about finding joy in simplicity and enoughness. That's its essence. As Suzuki Roshi said, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world but accepting that they go away. Whatever we're holding on to, it's going to change, as we've been talking about. And even the Buddha, when he first contemplated taking up the practices of renunciation, he said, my heart did not leap up at the thought of renunciation. But once he fully understood the benefit, he said, then my heart did leap up at this idea. And so we can see renunciation as the very opposite of clinging and craving, right? Which wants to hold on, which wants to pull towards. Renunciation is the letting go. So we see it intimately entwined with the second noble truth. And we never know what can open up when we let something go. You've probably all experienced this, something you've really held on to, an identity, a a career, a relationship, and you've let it go out of wisdom and a whole new blossoming has come forward. There's this beautiful Zen poem. When my house burned down, I gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky. (laughs) That's letting go. (laughs) So it's, again, not about throwing things away or this sort of aversive um, renunciation, but developing wise relationship to things, to experiences. 
not fearful or avoiding, but really what's for our true benefit. You know, a lot of what we talk about is really what, what's truly beneficial, what's wise here. And it's not just things, not just people, not just experiences. One of the biggest supports for our well-being and peace of mind giving up views and opinions. The Buddha talked about this again and again, that this is the source of all division, war and conflict, and the source of a huge amount of suffering. Our need to be right. And, you know, the delineation of who's on my camp, who's who's outside my camp, source of so much suffering. So reflecting on this for ourselves, what do we truly need and what will support well-being of mind and heart? And it's really interesting being on retreat, especially in a place like this where it's so simple, living in a tent or a casita, shared bathrooms, you know, not getting to choose what we eat, even though the food has been amazing, so beautifully prepared by our wonderful cooks and helpers. Um, but it's simple, right, compared to what we often, the choices we often have. What do we pick up again as we leave here? You spend a whole week with just the bag you brought of clothes. Hopefully you did just fine. And you go home and it's like most of us have way too much. How much is the right amount? Pay attention as Carol was exhorting you this morning. This process of ending and leaving retreat is a really important part of the retreat. What do we pick up again? And again, not I'm saying you have to, you know, what's the... That Japanese writer, the art of decluttering or something. (laughs) Anyway, she's all about going through and giving away, giving away. My sister's into it. She's really, oh, it's so great. You know, so that can be a good thing to do. But it's more experiences. What does the mind go towards? What do we pull in from media and internet and things like that? As Bhikkhu Bodhi says, real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on us, on them, so they no longer bind us. So it's not the things that are the problem. It's how we relate to them. The second of the, the, um, the second of the second path factor is non-ill will when it's developed, leads to goodwill, which is metta, what we've been practicing here. And so, as I said, we start of, out of the commitment to not act out of ill will. Again, you know, whatever the mind does, we might have thoughts of um, angry, angry thoughts or um, frustrated thoughts, but really the commitment not to act out and harm others out of that. But as I said, we can't force a metta feeling But as we've said again and again in this practice we've been teaching, and if you've done it before, every metta phrase plants a seed. And the seed is the intention towards well-wishing. That's what we can cultivate. That's what we have some degree of control over. So just really making that a commitment, planting those seeds, refining and deepening the intention towards kindness in any opportunity that you have. That's what makes a difference. And in metta practice, for most of us, not all but most, the most important place to develop it is for ourselves. 
for most people I see and work with, and I know this is true for myself, that the sense of criticism, self-judgment, lack of self-acceptance is the deepest wound, the biggest source of suffering, and leads to constriction in all other areas of our life and our spiritual practice. So really beginning, as the practice wisely does, with caring for ourselves is so essential. So really, if that is a tendency of mind that you know for yourselves, the metta practice is a powerful way to work with that, especially on long retreat. But my encouragement is to make that a, a, a clear and conscious part of your practice. It's not just some random detour. It's not some sort of deficiency that you alone have. It's really essential that we do this practice from some deep wish for our own well-being. And that wish is integrated and heartfelt. Otherwise, we're always coming out of a sense of deficiency or a sense of not good enoughness. As the Buddha said, you can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself, and that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. So what would that look like? What stories would you have to let go of? to actually abide in that sense of caring and well-wishing. You know, all of those stories of I'm not good enough, I don't deserve it, look what I did, look what I don't do. Maybe, but after the 10-point improvement program that I've mapped out for myself, then I'll be deserving. No, he says, right now, here, as you are, that that's possible. Because the heart of the practice is acceptance. Acceptance of ourselves, of our minds, of our bodies, of our hearts, accepting our experience and accepting others. This is essential. And the last of the three factors of the second factor is non-cruelty or harmlessness. And that's really just creating the intention. These are all intentions, which I love also. It's not saying these are commandments. These are intentions that we cultivate that our actions can be grounded out of non-harming and the positive expression, kindness and compassion. And the essence of this, of course, is sila or ethical conduct. And I love the the Pali word for this, which is ahimsa, non-harming, to live a life that doesn't uh, harm or, or hurt other beings. And again, in Buddhism, we include all beings. And for those of you that have been to Spirit Rock, you've maybe seen the concrete manifestation of thousands, literally thousands of people coming on that land, holding to that precept of non-harming. The animals are different at Spirit Rock. Spirit Rock, if you haven't been there, it's in the beautiful rolling hills of West Marin, so it's very rural, not wild and majestic like this, but it's quite beautiful. But there's a little village nearby and a quite busy road at the end of our driveway, but the deer and the turkeys, even the lizards and the birds aren't as afraid. And the deer will actually, you know, they'll be a few feet away and just look at you as you walk slowly by. The turkeys are positively annoying because they just don't even get out of your way. But I've seen even the birds that flitter along the path don't seem to be, you know, as, as frightened of humans as they normally are. And Guy and I live in Woodacre. It's five minutes away. The deer 
are just normal deer. They run as soon as they see you. They'll, you know, they're they're skittish as anything. There's something that's happened about the power of, as I said, countless thousands of people expressing metta and kindness and walking slowly. I'm sure that helps also. So living a life of ahimsa, we give gifts. The gift we give to others, human and non-human, is the gift of fearlessness. They don't have to be afraid of us. And the gift we give ourselves is freedom from remorse. And I'm sure you know, as you sit in meditation, what happens is past hurts or wounds or actions that we've done come up for this kind of life review. And it's a whole deep and and powerful process of purification to actually work skillfully with those. But the more that we live this life of non-harming, the less that happens, because we're not adding to that storehouse. And this is really important for the mind to deepen in meditation. If it's always agitated by remorse, by shame or blame or guilt, um, it's really hard to deepen. So these are integral. These are integral path factors to the deepening of our meditation. Albert Einstein, who was very wise in more ways than just physics, said... The ideals which have lighted my way and time after time have given me new courage to face life cheerfully have been kindness, beauty, and truth. So just out of wisdom, seeing that's what's important in a life. So they're the three factors of the second path factor, uh, of right intention, and it very naturally leads to the next basket, which is the sealer section. So it deepens and develops those wise intentions of non-harming. And it's basically around the precepts, basically around ethical conduct. We sometimes translate this word sila as virtue, and that seems a little prim and proper, but it's basically living a good life, a life of non-harming. And it, it really goes against the stream of a lot of the conditions of our culture, which is all about getting for oneself and you know not caring about others, this you know capitalist, materialist society. This is about recognizing we live in community, and our values and our actions affect other people. And again, the brilliance of the Buddha: this, these path factors affect every area of our life. The three that he highlights here are right speech, right action and right livelihood. So it's everything, really. Um, This isn't just about being a good meditator and having deep experiences, what you do on the cushion. It only matters how, if you take that into your life, and it actually affects how we are in the world. And again, there's a real (coughs) development in a linear kind of way. Wise understanding helps us understand what it means, you know, the possibility of the path and how to act leads to wise action, the sila section. And as we become more in harmony, aligned with the Dharma and these Dharma values, our meditation can really deepen. So the first uh, of the the, the sila section is wise speech, samavacha. We take the precept of of, um, this when we start a retreat. And it's such a huge area. I often say people just took this one area to practice with and didn't do anything else you could become enlightened. Because it's so challenging and so impactful. It's the way we can often most help 
other people and the way we can most easily and quickly hurt and harm. And you've probably all been at the giving and receiving end of unwise speech. Really can be so harmful. And the Buddha, again, gave these great guidelines, another set of lists, that for wise speech we abstain from lying, from divisive speech, from abusive speech, and from idle chatter. And then he has another great list, which is traditionally called admonishing another. We would call it more giving feedback. But it's really having difficult conversations. If you want to have a meaningful conversation with someone about something important, he said you should consider these, I think it's five things, that it's spoken at the right time, that it's spoken truthfully, that it's spoken affectionately, that it's spoken to the benefit of the other, to the situation, and that it's spoken with a mind or heart of goodwill. And I often think if you waited till you could check off each of those five factors, you probably wouldn't end up saying a lot because it's really hard to do to have all of those factors come together. But what we can learn from this is often not saying is just as valuable or important as speaking. And I'm not saying that, you know, we shouldn't say what's difficult, but just to recognize that. And then a huge part of wise speech is wise listening, is actually being able to really mindfully and heartfully listen to another person and not just waiting till they finish so you can say what you need to say. So really important to give bring this into our path of practice. Then the next section, again, the, these are all huge. We could take a week retreat on each one of these. Um, right action, samakamata. Um, basically, action kama is means literally action. And the ones the Buddha highlights here, abstaining from taking life, from stealing, from sexual misconduct. Again, very aligned with the precepts that we take on retreat. As we talk about when we give the precepts, they're not commandments, they're training. They're, how do I live in alignment with the Dharma? And so we're constantly refining our understanding of these and seeing, again, they're not meant to kind of constrain and limit us, but actually a source of joy. And I I love the Dalai Lama's teaching on this, Ahimsa, Harmlessness as a Happiness Practice. He has a whole book on ethics called Ethics for a New Millennium. This is what he says. Consider the following. We humans are social beings. We come into the world as a result of others' actions. We survive here in dependence on others. Whether we like it or not, there is hardly a moment of our lives when we do not benefit from others' activities. For this reason, it is hardly surprising that most of our happiness arises in the context of our relationships with others. Nor is it so remarkable that our greatest joy should come when we are motivated by concern for others. But that is not all. We find that not only do altruistic actions bring about happiness but they also lessen our experience of suffering. Here I am not suggesting that the individual whose actions are motivated by the wish to bring others happiness necessarily meets with less misfortune than one who does not. Sickness, old age, mishaps of one sort or another are the same for us all. But the sufferings which undermine our internal peace, anxiety, doubt, disappointment, these things are definitely less. 
In our concern for others, we worry less about ourselves. When we worry less about ourselves, an experience of our own suffering is less intense. What does this tell us? Firstly, because our every action has a universal dimension, a potential impact on others' happiness, ethics are necessary as a means to ensure we do not harm others. Secondly, it tells us that genuine happiness consists in those spiritual qualities of love, compassion, patience, tolerance, and forgiveness, and so on. For it is these which provide both for our happiness and others' happiness. He's so wise. I think I said I I left Australia when I was 25, went to Asia and spent a lot of time in India, and that's where I did my first retreat with S.N. Goenka. I was totally clueless. I had no idea what I was getting into. If any of you have sat with him and he was actually there in person, he's a fabulous, powerful teacher, but those retreats are really intense. Ten days, hour and a half long sittings, no walking, no yoga. But it was transformative for me. And I, I can't now remember what he's teaching. I know, you know if you know, he gives the same ones every retreat. But I don't even remember if there are any on sila, on ethics. But something shifted in me. I was actually living in India at the time. I had been living with my sister who was traveling with me. She didn't come on the retreat. She'd actually been a bit ill. But when I got back, uh, I traveled. I was living in McLeod Gunge, and I had to travel down to Jaipur for the retreat. My sister later told me, and I never know whether to be proud or dismayed by this, that I was nice to her for two weeks afterwards. <laughs> and it wasn't deliberate, so I can be, you know, but two weeks, you know, is that long? And was I not nice? That I can think I probably wasn't. But what I really can see from that, because I wasn't trying to be nice, but you've all known that for yourself, right? The sensitivity that we cultivate on retreat, it's natural expression, is just more caring for others. So right from there, um, I felt the impact of that. And of course, since then, as I've deepened my appreciation of this teaching, really seen, you know, especially around speech, just often, it's not worth it. You know, that sharp barb or retort or the gossip, it just feels kind of queasy afterwards and comes up when you sit and quiet in the mind. So really now see sila, ethical conduct, as a protection. And the, the Buddha talks about the bliss of blamelessness really is a source of happiness. So that's the sila section of the um, Eightfold Path. The last section is the meditation section, which is what we've basically been talking about one way or another for this whole retreat. But just to specifically highlight what the Buddha mentioned, the three Three in this section are wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise samadhi. And again, they're developmental. Wise effort, samavayama, it's not the same as energy. The wise effort the Buddha talks about is the practice of abandoning and letting go of unskillful, unwise states of mind and action and cultivating wholesome states of mind basically states of mind. This is really essential because as we do this, again, there's the developmental path, the mindfulness can deepen. A lot of what we work with, letting go of the hindrances, decreasing the kalesas, as we do that, the wholesome qualities of patience and love and equanimity and calm and joy, gratitude, 
can develop. What is pointed to here as effort is that this is not a passive practice. I often get the sense that people hear these teachings because there's so much on acceptance that you should just sit with whatever is. I call that lump on a log practice, and it's not so helpful. The Buddha said, engage with, and not out of resistance or aversion, but out of skillful means. If there is aversion in the mind, I mean, and often mindfulness is all we need to bring to an experience, but that's engaging, that's connecting. But sometimes we need more skillful means. We need to change the channel, as we've been talking about, or bring in metta, or uh, do some other kind of practice. This is the cultivation that the Buddha also always talked about. This is how we embark on this process of transformation, is actively decreasing, letting go, abandoning the unskillfully unwholesome, and cultivating the skillful and the wholesome. Letting go of old habit patterns, old conditioning, old thought ideas, and discovering new ways of relating. This is essential. As we do this, and again, even though there is a linear process here, they're not separate and they they come along together, especially in this meditation section. Because the very functioning of mindfulness, which is the next path factor, samasati, is to do this, is to decrease the unwholesome and increase the wholesome. From this basic practice, as we've been talking about, of knowing what's happening in the present moment. I like to add, there's a little bit of reflection in that, as in, you know that you're knowing. You, you know, you're aware that you're cultivating the factor of mindfulness. But as long as you know what you're knowing, knowing what's happening, that's the important thing. And then all of the path can open out of that. And there are you know, more um, detailed definitions of what mindfulness is. I like this one from Larry Rosenberg. He has a great book on the Anapanasati uh, breathing practice called Breath by Breath. So it sort of expands how we can understand mindfulness. He says, mindfulness is often likened to a mirror. It simply reflects what is there. It is not a process of thinking. It is preconceptual before thought. The only time that mindfulness can happen is in the present moment. If you are thinking of the past, that is memory. Mindfulness is unbiased. It is not for or against anything. Mindfulness has no goal other than the seeing itself. It isn't detached. It is a form of participation. One word that I personally have come to associate with mindful living is intimacy. The great 13th century Japanese Zen teacher Dogen was once asked, what is the awakened mind? And he answered, the mind that is intimate with all things. The task of mindfulness is to be intimate with experience. So I like that, intimate, really connecting in this deep way. Out of mindfulness, or what mindfulness manifests as, is what we call satipanya. And Buddhadasa would always talk about this, mindfulness wisdom. Asaito Utejaniya would also talk about awareness wisdom. He would translate sati as awareness. What wisdom naturally does when mindfulness connects with the moment is let go of what's painful or unskillful, just naturally. That's the function. Samasati is functioning when it's letting go of the unwholesome, the unskillful, the painful, 
and cultivating the beneficial, the wise, the skillful. We don't have to do a lot for it to do that. It's just, I think I already said this, like the hot coal. No one has to tell you to let it go or take your finger out of the flame. We naturally do that in response. So in the same way, samasati has that effect. Utejaniya, in his book, Awareness Alone is Not Enough, says the real value of meditation is not getting results like bliss and peace, however enjoyable they may be. The real value of meditation is the actual process of being aware and understanding what is happening. The process is important, not the result. We're so looking to get experiences. I want more peace. I want more calm. And of course, it's beautiful to have those results, but they're not what we practice for. He goes on to say, instead of complaining about what is or is not happening, you should appreciate that you are aware regardless of what you are aware of and learn from it. Awareness alone is not enough. Having a desire to really understand what is going on is much more important than just trying to be aware. We practice mindfulness meditation because we want to understand. What's understanding? Samaditi, wise understanding. So we're back linking in to the first path factor. So again, this kind of holistic model that the Buddha gave us. And then the last of the path factors is sama samadhi. Often we translate as right concentration. I don't know whether we've talked about it here or whether it was in interviews, where this word concentration doesn't, I think we did talk about it here, isn't a great translation because it has a sense of narrowness and fixity. And better translations of samadhi are things like non-distraction or unified unification of mind, or collected and balanced mind. Um, it's not necessarily um, narrow. It can be very vast, spacious, broad. And samadhi, the, the traditional de- definition, is what's called the jhanas, these deepening states of absorption, absorption of the mind um, collecting and unifying around certain experiences of meditation to these deeper and deeper states, really uh, quite profound meditation experiences. And if you're interested in this, if you are, you probably already know this, that there's an ongoing debate, a jhana's essential. Some people say, yes, you have to have them. Other people say, no. All you need is enough concentration, what they call access concentration, neighborhood concentration, neighborhood to jhana. Do the two, should you practice the two together or separately? Huge debates about this. What I really feel is we can all benefit from more concentration. If you have the inclination, it's great to deepen in samadhi, to even do samadhi jhana retreats and know that. But all of us can deepen, all of us need some enough to steady the mind and provide this continuity of mindfulness, that, that's what allows insight to happen. It's called kanika samadhi, moment-to-moment concentration, what we've been developing here. And what's interesting about concentration, again, I may have already said this, that in the list that where the Buddha details the development, the proximate cause, as in the factor that precedes and, and supports the development, isn't effort, isn't striving, isn't having an agenda, it's sukha. It's 
happy contentment of mind and body. So I love that that's what allows this um, deepening to happen. If we try too hard, we will never get there. If we try to hang on to the breath, try to get concentrated, it just leads to more suffering. So enough concentration, enough steadiness of mind. And that out of that steadiness, the beautiful qualities will naturally develop of equanimity, joy, calm, etc. And so this is the path of practice that the Buddha laid out for us. As we come, as I come to the end of the list, I f- you know, it's a circle. We go back to the wise understanding and then the wise intention. What is our aspiration for ourselves? Because intention, traditionally, samasankapa has that meaning that I talked about of renunciation, non-ill will, non-cruelty. But we can also use this word and we do mean it, it has its meaning in English, and what's our aspiration? As we journey on this path, what, what, are we, what are we traveling for? You know, unless we had some desire, we had this conversation the other day, unless we had some desire, some idea, we wouldn't do this, right? Journey all this way, put ourselves through this. Even if you find retreats, you know, generally pleasant, but for many people, they're, they're quite arduous or we'll all have periods where they're difficult. But we have to have some sense of where this deepens to because that's what keeps us going. And that's why sangha, community uh, is so helpful. Hearing teachings is so helpful. But as Saito says, and I said about pilgrimage, the journey, the process is more important. We don't want to be fixedly holding on to the goal because the paradox of this path is that there is a journey, there is a path, there are these destinations. Guy talked about the traditional ones the Buddha spoke about, but the practice and the awakening happens here and now. So we have to hold both of those. And we don't know what the next moment will bring, what the next letting go or insight or deepening will look like. We can't know that from here. If we did, we could just all go home. But it's unknowable, both in the sense of what it will be, but that mind is different from this mind. So there has to be this constant refreshing and letting go and letting be. If we crave too much, if we get on the Nibbana or bust bus, that's just suffering. Uh, and we, 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 we're not in that much control of the unfolding of this path. So there is cultivation, but the aliveness of it, the experience of it, and the freedom in it is here and now. So I love that we have to hold both. Yes, there's purification. Yes, there's cultivation. But it happens in this moment. And so the goal, if you put it that way, is actually to be more here. Not to get somewhere else, but to be more here, more fully alive, more present, more available with these qualities that we've been talking about and with this, the decreasing of the filters and the projections and the distorted perceptions that we are usually living out of. More fully here, more present. And to know this intimacy that that Dogen talked about, more intimate with things, to know our experience as directly 
as simply, as purely as we can, to lessen, to work with the impact, the momentum of the greed, aversion, delusion, the kalesas. And this, it goes hand in hand. You know, it's not like, oh, all of our time is spent with the hindrances getting rid of the kalesas. Um, That sounds just painful. But these go, you know, all together. Even as it's depicted as a wheel, even as depicted linearly, they're actually moving along. That the in the beginning of the path is the end of the path, and all of them feed into and influences each other. And the reason you're here now as a experienced student retreat, having done a few retreats, is you've had that experience for yourself. You've seen that that's the direction that this path goes to a more sense of confidence, of trust, of connection, of openness, of curiosity. And, you know, as I say this, I know the mind can sometimes go into, well, not now, but what about this, and I'm feeling contracted here. Yes, and. And this is a direction that the path goes. More peace, more ease, more contentment, more wisdom and compassion, as the Buddha would often say. So I want to just finish with um, a poem by um, Terry Tempest Williams that we actually found carved into a giant rock wall in a a beautiful, wouldn't quite call it a museum, it's more of a place of experience, the Lawrence S. Rockefeller Preserve in the Grand Tetons National Park. It's called A Meditation on Phelps Lake and it's appropriate because of our surroundings here. A feather floats on Phelps Lake, a cradle of light rocking with the breeze. Wind speaks through pines, light animates granite. An eagle soars, its shadow crosses over us. All life is intertwined. We see the great peaks mirrored in water, stillness, wholeness, renewal. Reflection leads us to restoration. Nature quiets the mind by engaging with an intelligence larger than our own. Mindful of different ways of being, our awareness as a species shifts. We recognize the soul of the land as our own. The path of wisdom invites us to walk with a humble heart, recognizing the dance between diversity and unity, action and restraint. The scales of nature will always seek equilibrium. A feather can tip the balance. So let's just let the words settle into silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.